Oh, I love that song. Love that song. Just want to be with you. We are in the in the beginnings of a uh, sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I just wanted to review a couple things, the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, before we start on the sermon today. The principles number one is we are a counterculture, not a subculture. Counter means we go against the flow. Rather than melting in, we stand out. We emphasize the differences between the culture around us and, and who we are as, as Christians. And people who are counterculture typically are trying to change their world. They're trying to change their culture. Secondly, number two, it's about internals, not externals. It's about internals, not externals. This counterculture, the one that Jesus brought, that we are part of, is called the kingdom of God. God is our king, we are his subjects, but it's an internal kingdom. It's a, it's a heart kingdom. It's inside of us, and we may look just like everyone else. We may wear the same style of clothes. We may live in the same kinds of houses, drive the same kinds of cars, attend the same schools, work at the same offices, shop at the same stores. But, so externally, we just look like everybody else in appearances, but the differences are in the inside. But it shows on the outside. It's about being, number three, it's about being then doing. Being then doing. God tells us man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Being precedes doing. And then four, it's impossible, not possible. That's the one we all like the best. It's impossible, not possible. What Jesus outlines in this Sermon on the Mount, this treatise, are the ethics of the kingdom of God and they are impossible to keep in human strength. That's why we need God. We need God to carry out these edicts. Today we're going to look at peace lovers or peacemakers. Now if I were to ask you today, how many of you want peace? How many of you raise your hand? Okay. I think everybody, both my hands are up. I, I would like peace. We all want peace and Peace has been a predominant theme in our world. The last century, we had two world wars, and in this century, we are engaged in the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan. We desperately want peace. During Vietnam, there was an anti-war movement or a peace movement. In my lifetime, there have been numerous attempts to bring peace to the Middle East. It's a major world theme. Peace has proven elusive, and I think we can all say that. And today we're going to look at peace, but we're going to look at peace in the biblical sense. And in order for us to really understand peace, we need to know what peace means and what peace does not mean. What does peace mean and what does peace not mean? And between what and whom? Today, peace lovers or peacemakers. We're going to look at basically one verse today in Matthew. It's on page 786 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Matthew 5, verse 9. You probably can have this memorized. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. If we're going to talk about peace, I want to start by talking about the def definition of peace. What is peace defined? If we look at the word peace in the Greek, it's a word called irene, irene. 
and and it means internal or inner tranquility, inner tranquility. On the external, letter B, it's the absence of conflict. So when we think mostly about peace, we think about inner tranquility and absence of conflict. And then we come to the Hebrew word shalom, which many of us are aware of the word shalom, is the word for peace in Hebrew. And the word shalom means everything that makes for a person's highest good. In other words, peace to the Hebrew is not only the negative side. It's not only absence of conflict, absence of war, absence of trouble or problems. Peace, by that definition, is passive and negative. In other words, if everybody leaves me alone, I'll have peace. Okay, Just leave me alone, I'll have peace. That's, that, that's the first thing we think about when we think about the word peace. But in the Hebrew, peace is defined as everything that makes for a person's highest good. A person's highest good. In the Bible, peace is not only absence of all evil, but the presence of all good things. It's not just freedom from trouble, but it's the enjoyment of all good. One word used for this is wholeness. Wholeness. If you picture a circle, put a circle around you, peace means complete well-being in every direction, with relationships, with all people, all circumstances, all situations. We have wholeness both internally and outwardly. So peacemakers are whole makers, okay? So this word peace has to do with far more than we usually think of it. That's what we're talking about in peace. Wholeness, everything is whole and in order. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge. It's very rare time in our lives that we have true peace in this complete dimension that we're talking about. In fact, peace is, is, is more of a process than a position. It's more of a journey than a static state. Okay? So if you can think about this as a journey, not just a static state in one place. And unless you live alone on a deserted island with no relationships... Peace is a process. Peace is a process. Conflicts are reality. Okay? Everybody said amen. You're married, you said amen. Okay. How do we become peacemakers? First, first I want to draw a contrast between peacemakers and peace lovers. Okay? Peacemakers and peace lovers. This will further expand our understanding of the definition of peace and how we can become peacemakers. Okay, both peace lovers and peacemakers have the same goal. It's peace. Okay, the goal is peace for peace lovers, peacemakers. The goal is peace. Number two, the peace lover follows the path of least resistance. The peacemaker follows the path of change or resistance. Number three, the peace lover practices appeasement. The peacemaker practices confrontation. Whoa, okay, confrontation. Number four, the peace lover tries to survive hostilities. The peacemaker tries to end hostilities. Number five, the peace lover is passive. The peacemaker, number five, is active. Number six, the peace lover avoids confrontation. The peacemaker 
confronts with purpose. Okay? Big difference. Number seven, the peace lover, the goal is to avoid discomfort. Avoid discomfort. Number seven, peacemaker, the goal is to bring reconciliation. And number eight, the peace lover does everything to keep the peace. The peacemaker does everything to bring peace or reconciliation. Now, let, let, me, let me illustrate from a marriage relation. Okay, Judy and I have been married 40 years. Okay, um, let's, say, let's say we have a, an argument. Now, we've never had an argument or fight. But let's say, for hypothetically, we had an argument. It degenerates into an emotional shouting match and a verbal fight. And we both say things that just hurt deeply. So we've just had this long, drawn fight. Okay? And then we stop. Now, the peace lover... The mode of operation is to sweep the incident under the rug and pretend it never happened, okay? So you just had this knockdown, drag-out fight, and we just pretend it didn't happen. That's the peace lover. And, and being afraid to bring the issue up again, because if I bring it up again, it's, it's going to bring more conflict, and I, I, we're going to withdraw, we're going to appease the spouse, follow, follow the path of least resistance. We're going to avoid confrontation at all costs. We're not going to bring that up again. That's passive. That's what a peace lover does. But at this point in time, is there an absence of conflict? Yes. But is there a peace? Absolutely not. Nothing's been resolved. There's an absence of conflict. It's like withdrawal from the battlefield. There's no peace. Nothing is resolved. The relationship is still strained. We need reconciliation. We need peacemaking. A peacemaker is a maker of wholeness, bringing reconciliation, resolution, restoration of relationship, seeking the highest good of the other person, dealing with the issues, talking them through. A peacemaker is proactive and follows the path of discomfort but will lovingly confront the issues in order to reconcile. The purpose of the goal is reconciliation. Without reconciliation, there's no peace. But the goal is to bring peace through reconciliation, to bring two parties together who are at odds, who are enemies. Now, Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. peacemaker. And the peacemaking process must begin with the peacemaking mission of Jesus, to bring us to God. Now, there's a verse, we don't have time to uh, un unpack this at depth, but it's a verse that talks about being uh, brought near. In Ephesians 2, 13 to 17, Ephesians 2, 13 to 17 says this. By the way, I put all these passages in your notes so you can look them up later if you need to. We'll go through all of these as we go. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you, who are far away and peace to those who are near. 
For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. That talks about God's process of bringing peace through Jesus Christ. Now, there are four relationships, four fundamental relationships that require peacemaking. The first one is peace with God. Peace with God. That's the starting point for peace. Whether it's world peace, absence of evil or trouble, wholeness, man's highest good, Jesus' purpose for coming was to bring us into relationship with God, to bring us to peace with God. His purpose was that. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we, we are all sinners. We are all alienated from God by nature. And we are postured, just by nature, we're postured against God. We're, we're in rebellion. You say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and God can do his thing. I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to stay in charge of my life. If you've never wrestled with God on who's in charge of your life, you're probably not human, okay? We all wrestle. Who's in charge, me or God, okay? Um, I usually wrestle with that daily. Who's, who's going to be in charge? But there's this, this tendency in all of us to say, I'm going to run my own life. And some people express this, this sin or separation from God with just a passive indifference. They just kind of ignore God. They say, you know, I'll do my thing. Just, just leave me alone. I'll do my thing. Passive indifference or active rebellion. People that actually do things they know are wrong. Either way, whether it's passive indifference or active rebellion, we are alienated against God because those are indicators of sin. They separate us from this relationship with God. And that relationship has to be rebuilt or there has to be a bridge to that relationship with God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, separation from God. Now, had God been a peace lover, had God been a peace lover, he might have said, you know, I should probably just leave these human beings alone. I don't desire confrontation. They're pretty, they can be pretty nasty. They're, they're messy. People will hate me. I don't want my son to be murdered for people who don't want my help. They don't want to, to relate to me, so I'm just going to let them alone. That would be the peace lover approach. But God was not a peace lover. He was and is a peace maker. He wanted to restore us to relationship. His desire was to be reconciled, to bring wholeness to us. And that's inner wholeness as well as outer wholeness. That's why he sent Jesus, his son. Jesus, the visible representation of the living God to us. He wanted to make peace. He initiated that relationship restoration because he's a peace maker. Romans 5, 8 through 11 says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we are God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. While we were still sinners, enemies, Jesus died for us. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. 
Did he love peace? Does he love peace? You bet he loved peace. He died. He died for peace. So you could have peace. Jesus loved. Now, if you really study the Jesus, the Jesus in the Bible, New Testament, you also discover that he was also confrontational. He didn't follow the status quo. He didn't follow the path of, of least resistance. He challenged the status quo. And he confronted sin. To the repentant, he forgave. To the rebellious and self-righteous and religious, well, he drove them out of the temple with a whip. <laughs> it's interesting to see that part of Jesus. But his primary purpose was to bring men and women into peace with God. Peacekeeping can sometimes be confrontational. It's always strong. Jesus did not water down his teaching. But his goal was to bring men and women to peace with God. Now, sometimes that puts them at odds with other people. The price was the blood of his son. Little note in here. You probably ask, what about Matthew 10, 34 to 38? where Jesus said, Do you not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth? I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He's talking about putting other things above their relationship with God. Not loving God more than we love people. We have to love God first and foremost. The loving thing is to say, what is it that God values? What is it that God hates? God hates sin, loves people, but he hates sin. And when he sees sin is destructive in people's nature, then we take that same kind of attitude and heart. See, it's not peace at any price. So wholeness. Peacemakers, first and foremost, we start with making peace with God. This brings us to the second relationship of, of peace. This has to do with peace with self. Peace internally, peace within. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but peace with God is crucial in order to have peace within. We find there's a God-shaped vacuum inside each one of us that can only be filled by God himself. And until that's filled with God, we never have peace because there's always emptiness. We can't have that wholeness. We don't have the ability to love and be loved. We ask the question, where am I going? Why am I here? What's my identity? Now, a peace lover will ignore internal problems and just kind of hope they go away. A peacemaker will actively seek solutions and answers to their own internal problems. And all of that is found in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. It's interesting to hear famous athletes. Some of these were Olympic athletes. Some of them are football players, which I heard a, an interview with just this last week. And experiencing incredible success. But they've said, and they say over and over again, my identity isn't, and my fulfillment isn't in my success. It's in Jesus Christ. They found that internal peace 
in Jesus Christ. The third relationship, this is one we think about a lot, is peace with others, peace with others. This is the horizontal dimension, people to people, man to man. This is where the rubber meets the road. Human relationships are always going to be messy. And as long as we're human, we'll always have misunderstandings, we're going to have hurt feelings, disagreements, we'll even have fights, and we will. Let me just say something. Relationships are God's tool for the development of our character. Relationships are God's tool for the development of our character. If, if we're alone, isolated on a desert island, we would never grow in patience, understanding, or tolerance. I've heard couples say, a lot of times this will happen in premarital counseling, we're just so opposite. We're totally different. I said, good. That's good. That's the way God made us. That's the way God made you. When someone sees everything my way, I don't learn understanding. When everyone agrees with me, I don't learn tolerance. When everyone does for me right now, I don't learn patience. And if you need to work on sensitivity, like I do, what does God do? God places you in a household with a wife and two daughters. Sensitivity. I'm a lot different than I was 20 years ago, just so you know. Am I? <laughs> 40 years ago. She said, I don't know, she made it longer. God has placed each of us where we can grow. Now, there's an interesting proverb. I really like this proverb. 14.4 uh, says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty, but the, from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. Another another. Version says, some disturbance is the price of growth and accomplishment. Another one says it this way. There is no milk without some manure. There's no milk without some manure. Okay? Now, in this church, as we grow and we change and we grow up, there's just going to be some manure. So, you know. And I know it stinks. All of us are producing some of it. That's what we have. There are going to be conflicts. And whether or not there's going to be some manure, what are we going to do about it? The peace lover avoids conflicts, ignores it, plugs their nose, and pretends it isn't there. What is a peacemaker going to do? Pick up a shovel and get to work. That's what happens. Confrontational, uncomfortable, stinky, messy, but it's necessary. What do we do when someone sins against us personally? And if it hasn't happened this week, it'll happen next week. Just so you know. What do we do when someone sins against us personally? In Luke 17, 3 to 4, it says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. That's a lot of manure in one day. If he sins that time, Jesus said, forgive him. Forgive him. In Matthew 5, 23 to 24, it says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. No. Oh. Peacemaking. Peacemaking. If at all possible, be at peace with all men. The Bible tells us being at peace. Now, you can only 
handle your side. Somebody may not make peace with you, but you can take the effort. Say, be at peace with all men. Now, what do you do to approach this if you're not sure how to get to resolution? Let's say Matthew 18, 15 says this. This is an illustration. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you will have won your brother over. Okay, there's an initiative. You are taking the effort to make peace with someone you know has an issue. He did something against you or whatever it is. Said, but if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. So how do we, how do we handle this? This is the Matthew 18 principle. Is that if, you, if there's a problem, go personally first. Now, now don't go to somebody else first. Okay, just go to him. Now, if, if Vern has a problem with Chris, okay, okay, he, oh, yeah, he does. Okay, he's got a problem. Now, he has a problem with Chris. Now, if he comes and talks to Roger, what good does that do? Now, Roger has a problem with Chris, and he hasn't even been involved in this thing. So what, what you did is you established a triangle. And what happens is that when we have a problem with somebody, um, we want to go talk to someone else. Usually it's because we want them to agree with us and take our side. Isn't that right? We want, we want somebody to agree with us. And what happens is you end up with triangles. This is called triangulation. And it causes more problems in relationships and families and churches and groups than you can imagine. So he says, if you have a problem with somebody, go to them. That's the peace. Now, the peace lover would say, I'm going to avoid conflict with Chris. I'm going to talk to Vern about it. <laughs> See if I can get him to agree. No. That's triangulation. Peacemakers go directly to the person that's involved. And, and there's, a, there's a sequence here. You go one-on-one first. One-on-one. You don't involve anybody else. Now, if it's a serious enough issue and they don't see that there's a problem, it says take one or two others so that you can work through the problem together. And some of this has to do with someone who's sinning. And it may be sin in a church. It may be sin in a family. Whatever it is. There's a, a process that you go through. First one-on-one. And then you bring supporting leaders that can a- actually help you to help. Now, the purpose always is reconciliation. It's always peace Making, you're trying to make peace. You're not trying to bulldoze somebody and prove that you're right. We're trying to make peace, reconciliation. There's a process to go through. Any kind of sin, what sin? Any sin. Peace lovers avoid conflict. They're more concerned about personal comfort than the spiritual state of their Christian brother or sister. Let me say that again. We're more concerned about our personal state of comfort. Because comfort, it's hard to be a peacemaker. It's tough. And the purpose is to restore relationship with God. Go to the source. And peacemaking or reconciliation will never occur unless we go to the source. Peacemakers are those who end hostilities. They bring the quarrelsome together. They resolve conflicts. They bring people together. And the peace that the Bible calls blessed 
does not come from an evasion of issues. It comes from facing them, dealing with them, and conquering them. And you say, I can't do that. Good. I can't either. You know why we need the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the living God? Because these are impossible, not possible. Keep putting that out there. Realize these are... And some people are more naturally confrontational. They're easier. Some people, oh, I can never do that. If God calls you to be a peacemaker, ask for his help. And if we rely on the Holy Spirit, it works far better. Now, Jesus did not promise us comfort, but conflict. We're saturated with a feel-good society value that think it's wrong if we don't feel good. Well, let me say something. Peacemaking does not always feel good, but the results are always good. Making of peace is always through struggle. It says, happy or blessed are those who do so. The fourth dimension in peacemaking is bringing others to peace with God. Bringing others to peace with God. This is something that should bring us great joy. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the message of reconciliation. See, Jesus' main mission was a reconciliation of lost humanity to their creator, to God. Our main mission is to reconcile people to their creator. It's making disciples. The peace lover will avoid discomfort of contacting people who are lost or unbelievers, will tend to avoid sharing their faith, will avoid standing up for the right or confronting unrighteousness. The peacemaker lovingly confronts unrighteousness, darkness, lies, and untruth, wherever it is, whatever form it takes. Lovingly confronting others with the claims of Jesus and points them in the right direction towards eternal life. Said, blessed or happy are the peacemakers. And then Roman numeral four says, they will be called sons of God. They will be called sons of God. One author says, there is something godlike about bringing people to reconciliation. There's something godlike about bringing people to reconciliation with God, with self, with others, and with, with other people. It's God's work. We are his children. The person who makes peace is engaged in the same work that God of peace is doing, establishing right relationships, bringing wholeness and restoration. That's being a peacemaker. You ask, how can I do this? How can I be a peacemaker? I'm not a confrontational person. You cannot. Remember principle number four. It's impossible, not possible, in our own strength. God has to do it through us. Being a peacemaker requires humility, prayer, submission, courage, and wisdom. It's God's work. Let God do it through you by his Holy Spirit. Peace lover or peacemaker? Which are you? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you have given us this incredible privilege of being peacemakers. And I pray, God, that we would take this seriously, realizing again our total dependence on you for peacemaking. And, Father, that we would know what you're doing. You would be the one that makes the way. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?